throw a little bit about bow hunting small game in today. Uh, this was originally going to be a one-part show, and I was into an hour yesterday and still had half the outline to go through and realized something I should have realized in the beginning. If you get me talking about bow hunting in depth, um, one hour is not enough time. So today we're going to go ahead and we're going to complete this series. Uh, at least I'm going to give it my best shot and try to do that. Hopefully you enjoyed yesterday's show. I know some of you guys really are, are not into getting out there and hunting. And so like two days in a row of bow hunting may not be your cup of tea, but hopefully you, you listen anyway. Because if you learn about other things, even if you don't directly participate in them, you understand them better. And I think that... A lot of people ask me, Jack, how do you understand uh, people in life the way that you seem to do? Because I can, you know, if people ask me questions that don't even seem like survival related. I, I feel in a lot of ways that they are, but they're more of like a psychological question or something like that. And I think it's because I understand nature. And I think if you understand the way that animals think and work and act and be, and you, you really can kind of feel the pulse of that, you, you're quick to see when things are not natural. And one of the things you hear me say a lot on the show is it, it's, also, it's not just about when it comes to liberty and freedom and homesteading and all that stuff. It's behaving like a human. And that a lot of the activity that we are engaged in today is not human behavior. My, my wife is blogging about this right now over at hugnurse.com, a little uh, promo for her, about how you know we have all these problems supposedly with ADHD. And is it just normal to expect a, a nine-year-old child to sit at a desk for eight hours a day and, and be given information they're not really interested in without a lot of physical activity to go with it? And the answer is probably not. And I think that a lot of the times when I'm able to key in on things, whether it's business, whether it's psychology, whether it's uh, a system or what have you, it's that I, because I am so in tune with what's natural, I, I'm very quick to, to, to pick up on something when I go, that's not natural. So hopefully, even if you're not into hunting, you can get something out of today's show and hopefully yesterday's show as well. Before we get into the main topic today, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the Survival Podcast is here for you. Five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original sponsor. I mean, they were the first people that ever said, hey, Jack, we want to sponsor your show. And we brought them on, and they've never gone away. And they also support the Member Support Brigade by giving away uh, their Discount Buyers Club, which, which Vic sells every day to people that don't listen to the show and are not part of the Member Support Brigade for $29, and they happily pay it because they get big discounts on everything that Safe Castle offers. But if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, you get that membership absolutely for free, and it is lifetime. It covers Call it 30 bucks of your $50 of your first year of membership. That's a pretty dadgone good deal. And think about it this way. Let's say you joined as a monthly member to see what the Members Brigade is all about. That costs you five bucks. One benefit alone is worth 29. Hopefully, if you do that, you won't cancel. You'll stick around for a full year. Uh, but I just want to kind of paint how big a deal it is that Vic Rontala over there 
of uh, Safe Castle supports us that way as part of the Members Brigade. So whether you're part of the Brigade or not, when you're looking for stuff for your prepping, consider checking out Safe Castle just because of the loyalty and the amount of support that Vic has given us. And he always, always takes care of his customers. I've had exactly zero complaints from the audience about Safe Castle. And in two years, that's almost like, what's going on? Like, you know, occasionally somebody complains about everybody. Uh, never Safe Castle. That says something right there. Uh, next up today is MERS-radio.com, M-U-R-S-radio.com. Uh, that's Rob over there, Rob Belleville. And he, you know what? The thing about Rob is you won't find a tremendous amount of stuff in his store, a couple different radio sets, base station, uh, and a few other th motion detectors and things like that. And what that means is if you have anything you need to do with his equipment and you call him up and say, Rob, this is what I'm trying to do, he's either going to say, here's how you do that, absolutely, this is exactly what you need to do, or you can't do that. And you're not going to muck around with anything and try to figure something out and you know waste your time because he only has a limited selection of equipment, the best stuff for the applications that he's trying to provide for, and he knows his stuff cold. So check out MERS Radio. The reason I love it is it lets me blend secondary uh, uh, communications along with security, and I'm able to keep kind of a a radio-based eye on what's going on in my property. If the dog's trying to get out of the gate, I hear alert zone one. If somebody's sneaking around my door at night, I hear alert zone two, and I'm able to take appropriate action. It's really great to take security and communications and put them together. Um, next up today, make sure you connect with us, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Make sure you check out our uh, our gear shop. We've got a lot of cool stuff there. And do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you support the show at $0.20 cents an episode. You can find out more about the uh, Members Brigade by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And when it comes to our sponsors, remember, the best way to always make sure you're dealing with an official Survival Podcast sponsor, go to our site first and look for the sponsor's banner in the right-hand margin. So let's get into this topic. As I said yesterday, the show went long, and I realized it was going to be like a two-hour show, and that didn't make any sense, especially in a week where I'm kind of jammed for material. So I'm actually recording this show right after the one you heard yesterday, uh, just to, to get Wednesday taken care of. I got carpet people in the house on Tuesday, and this, so this is actually Monday. I've crammed three shows in a Monday to try to keep you as full as possible. But when I talk about bow hunting, and hopefully you hear it, there's a passion there. Uh, the, you know, the only other things that are like that are when I talk about my family, uh, when I talk about freedom and liberty, when I talk about growing our own food and permaculture, and when I talk about bow hunting. Those are the, the things that in my life, uh, even more so than just basic preparedness things and stuff like that, because to me those are a means to liberty and independence, right? These are the things that I'm passionate about. These are the things that when I'm doing them or talking about them, engaged in them, I feel fully alive. And there's never been a time in my life that I felt more alive than that half a second, that half a breath before the shot at full draw when I know, yes, I'm about to take a life, but I'm about to do it in a very humane way, I'm about to do it in a very meaningful way, and I'm about to do it in a very traditional way. When I'm about to let go of that arrow, that half of a millisecond before the release, when you can hear your heart in your ears, And when you have a feeling that's almost transcendental, something that you know, nothing against gun hunting. I hunt with guns all the time, but it never 
feels the same. For those of you that are deer hunters, if you can think of the first time you ever shot a deer with a rifle, and you can think of the way that felt and how it never quite felt that way again, with the bow, it's better than that every single time. It doesn't matter if it's a great big buck or just a meat doe. It's always the same. It's never routine. It's always special. That's why yesterday's show went long. That's why we're doing a follow-up show today. Uh, where I left off yesterday, I was about to go into patterns and behaviors. And I mean the patterns and behaviors of deer. And I, again, I want to say that a lot of the stuff that I've given you, especially yesterday, would be applicable everywhere. This section, the first section we're going to talk about today with patterns and behavior, are really specific to white-tailed deer. Um, there's two big seasons for deer. You know when you're a kid, there's certain seasons, right? Uh, back to school season, uh, Halloween season when you get to carve pumpkins and go get candy. Thanksgiving, you get some time off, you get to eat turkey. The big one for the kids, the whole kid year revolves around Christmas, right? So there's seasons when you're a kid, there's seasons when you're an adult. But for deer, when it comes down to like the Christmases, there's the pre-rut and there's the rut, Okay, and I talked about this a little bit yesterday, but the pre-rut is the time of the year when the bucks are getting ready to breed. And all that testosterone is you know, flowing through them. And, you, and they take a physical change. A buck deer takes a physical change as they go into the pre-rut and the rut. The first thing that you notice about a deer as he's moving into that pre-rut and rut stage, uh, a buck, is his neck swells. And that's all those hormones and all that stuff raging that's saying it's time to make the species uh, stable. It's time to, to breed. It's time to pass the genes along. And he's going to look big and tough, and he's got to stand up to those other bucks so he has the right to breed, and that neck swells. And that's the big thing. You can see that. You'll also see a change in his attitude, more aggressive behavior, a more alert behavior. But the alertness is actually detrimental in re relation to predators, whether that's a mountain lion or you with your bow, because the alertness is all about where's the doe that I can breed and where's the, the rival buck that I need to chase off, and they become obsessed with that, and that is, you know, it gets, it, the pre-rut is where it starts, and it gets, it gets more and more and more along the way. What switches it over from pre-rut to rut really isn't about the bucks. It's about the does. It's about when the does say, okay, I'm, I'm receptive to breeding. I'm receptive to, to mating with a buck so that I can have babies in the spring. I'm ready now myself to propagate the species. And that's a biological event. Uh, deer are not like humans. They don't have sex for fun. They have sex because it's in them and they're driven to it for procreation. You will not see two deer getting it on in March. It just won't happen. You won't see it in June. You won't see it in August. You'll see it in the rut when the doe is in heat and that's the only time you're going to see it. Understanding that and understanding when it starts, when it's running, and when it stops. And what effect it has on the deer is a key part to your success. Because it happens in the fall, and we hunt in the fall. And depending on where you are and when your season begins and ends, you may hunt the pre-rut and not actually be able to hunt during the, the, the peak of the rut. Or by the time the peak of the rut's there, the rifle hunters may be in the woods with you. And the, the whole game changes. You may hunt... A time you wouldn't even consider the pre-rut. You know, in Pennsylvania, deer season uh, starts around the 1st of October, runs to two weeks into November. And when it first starts, they're just not there yet. 
By the middle of the month, they're kind of in that pre-rut stage. By the end of the month, going into November, they're breeding and they're, they're raging with it. But by then, the gun hunters aren't in the woods, but the small game hunters are out there chasing rabbit and pheasant and grouse and squirrels. So now they've created a new dynamic, even though that's going on. So where you are is going to have a big effect on how these things affect you, but they're going to affect you no matter where you are. When a buck is in the pre-rut, he will behave almost like himself with some differences. And what I mean by that is, He'll start doing a lot more rubbing, again, which is where they run their antlers up and down the trees, and you can find those rubs. Uh, he'll start maybe creating scrape lines and, and, and doing the scrapes like I talked about yesterday. And if you haven't listened to yesterday's show yet, it would be so much better if you listened to yesterday's show before today's, because I wouldn't have to re-explain all these things. Um, and he'll start looking for does, and he'll start becoming somewhat territorial, but he will still basically stick to his pattern. And what I mean by that is a deer is driven by some very unique, you know, very basic needs. They need to sleep. They need to be protected from predators. They need to eat. They need to drink water. And at this other time of the year, they also have a, it's absolutely a need to take part in the breeding process. Even the bucks that are young and maybe run off by larger bucks or, or, or what have you, they're still going to try. They have to. The does, once they come in the heat, they have to breed. It's, it's, it's hardwired into them. But other than that portion, what they need to be able to do is sleep uh, in a relatively safe place. We call that a bedding area. They need to be able to find a source of food. They need to find a source of water. So a buck in pre-rut will pretty much stick to a pattern of, I'm going to go to my place where I bed. I'm going to sleep when it's time to sleep. Uh, at certain times of the day, I'm going to move to a place where there's food or water. I'm going to move back to a bedding location in the heat of the day because uh, it's still pretty warm out. Uh, and, and if I'm not moving, I'm not vulnerable. Uh, and I'm, then when I'm hungry again, I'm going to go eat and, I, and I'm going to drink, find water. So we can start to create a, a pattern based on that. Once the rut goes into full swing, that buck may not even eat for two weeks or more. He'll look huge because of that swollen neck, but he'll lose weight. So now if I'm in the rut, I've got to play to that. I've got to find the scrape lines and the rub lines and where are the does because that's where the bucks are going to be sniffing around looking for that. The does also are affected by the rut because one, a buck is raging and he's, he's got some breeding going on and there's some, there's some does and heat around. Uh, it's, it's all, you know, it's all or nothing. So the does at that point become very um, skitty, skittish around the, the bucks. They're going to try to avoid the bucks unless they're in heat. They don't want to be part of this unless it's their time. So even if I'm just looking for a meat animal, a doe, um, I have to be aware of the fact that the does are going to be somewhat skittish around the bucks in this period of time. And where I'm at with the deer densities and populations, I like have a big deal on this. If I'm up in a northern state where the, the, the you know there's not much private land private land management, and the ratio's out of whack, and there's nine or ten or twelve does to every one buck, this is going to have a less effect on the does as it does on the bucks. If I'm in a well managed area where I've got maybe one buck to two does, those does are going to be a lot more affected by a whole bunch of raging hormone-based bucks. And I've got to be aware of these things. And I've got to, regardless of whether I'm, I'm out there looking for a meat animal and a doe only, or I'm looking for a buck, or I'm looking for either or, I've got to be aware of these things and I've got to play to them. And this is where I can start doing things like running mock scrapes, rattling like I talked about yesterday, 
grunt calls, bleats. There's, there's bleats that are specific to a doe that's in heat. During these peak times of the rut, all of these things are far more effective than they are in the pre-rut or prior to the pre-rut or after the rut's over. Once we get past that, or if we're not there yet, everything about this is based on feeding and bedding and water. And the water's usually an afterthought because the deer are pretty good at finding that, so they find a way to make that part of what they're doing. Unless you're in a very dry area where hunting water holes can be very effective, in most of the eastern woods, there's plenty of water out there for the deer. They get a lot of it from their browse and things like that. So if we're not dealing with the rut, we need to really think about what our prey is going to do when it wakes up. Think about this. You're a deer. Uh, you've been out for most of the evening because you're a nocturnal animal. You've maybe had a little snack for breakfast on the way home, and now you've bedded down. And the day is going to get pretty hot because we're in, let's call it prior to even the pre-rut, the early part of the season, it's hot. You're covered with hair designed to keep you warm. You're not real, real happy about it being 95 degrees out in the middle of the day or 80, even 75 degrees out there the day. So you're going to go lay down. And if nobody bothers you, if you're not bothered by insects, molested by other hunters, or, or uh, some type of predator moves in or something like that, you're pretty much going to stay put. If you get hungry, you might get up in the middle of the day, move somewhere, get something to eat, and go back. But you're going to begin your, 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 you know, your job, so to speak, your, your quest for a living uh, in the evening as it starts to cool off. And that's where your biggest movement's going to be. So as a hunter, you're looking to intercept those deer on the way back to their bedding areas in the mornings, and you're looking to intercept those deer uh, on their way to feeding locations from their bedding areas in the afternoons. And understanding those patterns is important. And this is where we start to do things like raid deer runs and deer trails and things like that. And there's something very, very important to understand about runs and trails. Uh, the, what, what I'm talking about here is you can go out in the woods, and if you're in an area with a lot of large deer population, you'll see areas that almost look like a footpath. And whether you call them a run or a trail, is highly based on your geography. And you, they can be anything just from places where nothing grows. So you've got heavy, heavy growth and an opening through there that you can see. Uh, soft ground, it might be worn into the ground. If you come to my house right now uh, and go in my backyard, you can see some very clear pathways that the dogs always take. They trample the grass down, the ground's grown in a little bit. It's the same type of thing. Well, if I take my dogs away for a month or two, you're still going to be able to easily identify those areas. It's going to take a very long time before they completely grow back in. If I only take my dogs away two months out of the year, every year, you'll almost never know when they're there and when they're not there unless maybe you look for some other things. Uh, if you came to my house and didn't know whether the dogs were in the house or whether they went off to doggy summer camp or what have you, there's certain things you could look for. And what would they be? One would be hair. If there's, if there's hair in the area, considering we have wind and things like that, that would mean that they were probably there very recently. The other thing would be dog do, right? Did the, does the dog poo? If there's poo near the area of travel and it's fresh instead of old and dried up, that means the dog was probably there recently. If it rains and there's fresh tracks and the soft ground, there's fresh, well-defined tracks. These are all signs that it's not just an area that's often traveled, but the dogs were there recently, and it's reasonable to believe that they might be there again. Now, what does this have to do with deer? Well, the, the issue is that where a deer will find a lot of feed or water may change with the seasons. And what I'm trying to get across to you is just because you find very well-traveled deer runs 
doesn't mean that in your particular time of the year, in your particular area, that those deer are there. So if we know there's a good source of food, so if we have an area where we're able to go in, especially in scouting, we'll talk about in a bit, and we're able to see, we're actually able to find some depressions, maybe under some pine trees with some deer hair in them, we know we have an active bedding area. Deer are sleeping there. And if we know that it's the fall and there's some standing corn uh, out in the fields and we've come by and we've looked at night and we've seen deer out in those fields, we know that that's a feeding area for the deer, both for the corn and for the browse that's available out there. If we have runs that are going between that bedding area and those fields, odds are those are going to be active runs being used that time of the year. But if we have a very well-defined run that happens to go to a place where there's a lot of blueberry and blackberry and things like that, that run may be useless to us as a hunting trail in the fall because it just may be very well worn in because the deer heavily use that to feed on those items when they're available. Uh, it could be the same thing with mass drop. You could have an area, a stand of oaks. That during the mass drop, man, the deer are hammering that run and they're hammering that area. But once the mass drop has passed or before the mass drop stops, and by mass I mean when the acorns fall out of the trees, those runs, while they look well defined, because let's face it, for hundreds and hundreds of years, deer have been using that travel route. Um, even though they look well defined, they're not going to be heavily used. So we need to look for things like, again, hair. We need to look for deer manure. That tells us, we can look at the manure and it's, you know, what its current state is. If it's shiny and black, it's fresh. If it's warm, it's extremely fresh. If it's dried up and brown and that's the only thing we can find, well, that trail may be a great trail, but it may not be a great trail for this time of the year. So it's a lot about scouting. It's a lot about understanding uh, what, what's going on around us and what's there and what resources are there and when they're available to the deer. So we can find trails that look like, like highways in the, in the forest. But we might set up a, a game camera there, and at a certain time of the year, it might sit there for two weeks and never see a deer. And another time of the year, it may, may literally look like a deer highway. Just, and it, 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 it's usually not that cut and dry. But it's important to think about, because I've seen people come to the conclusion that a specific trail is a good trail to set up some stands on and hunt, and hunt there all through the season and never see a deer, and not understand why. And it's not because deer aren't using that area. It's they're not using that area at that time. Or the person's made a mistake, and they've keyed the deer into their location, and they'll go around you. So if that starts to happen, where are your secondary routes, your trails that look less used? But often there are the places where when they feel pressure, they start to move to. So you have to become aware of all these things. But it always is going to be based on feeding and bedding. And if you can identify feeding sectors and bedding sectors and the trails that they're using to connect them between the two, you can always put yourself in a, in a position to be in the right place to have a good opportunity for a shot. That doesn't mean it'll always work out, but you're going to create opportunity for yourself. And if you start to find secondary trails and you realize the deer are tipped off to your presence and you move to one of those secondary trails, often that's a great strategy. Uh, but if you don't understand the feeding and the bedding areas, it's not going to happen. Some other things we can look for on trails that tell us that they're being freshly used and active. And if none of these exist, you can create them for yourselves. If you have a tree laying across a trail, 
and that trail's being used often, like an old branch or a tree or something, you should be able to find places where there's freshly dug ticks and nicks, whereas the deer walk across with their hooves, either uh, by dragging them across or stepping on them, they create fresh marks into those trees. And if you look at the mark and you're not sure if it's fresh or old, take your fingernail and scrape it. If it's the same color, then it's a fresh mark. If it's a highly different color, the marks are old. That's one. Another thing we can look for is we can find rubs on trees. So the buck's doing his rubbing thing. Uh, they'll do that very early in the pre-rut. Even way before the pre-rut, they'll start rubbing trees. It's a pretty natural habit. Sometimes it does have to do with getting rid of some of that velvet. Well, is that yesterday's rub or is it a rub from two weeks ago? Well, if you look at the bottom of the tree and the sawdust, the, the shavings from the rub are still laying there, it's probably a fresher rub uh, than one that doesn't have that. Is there hair from the deer's head stuck in, in the sap on the tree? These are all signs that the rubs are relatively fresh. Uh, if the rub looks healed, like the sap's come out and dried, it might be from last year. Uh, the, these are also things to, to look at. Um, and... All of these things together start to give you a picture of what the actual activity is. Instead of just having, you know, if, if, if all people disappeared and you, you were an alien, you came to this planet and you were walking through wilderness and uh, you didn't see any signs of life because you just were beamed down or something and you got to a, a highway, you would say, some intelligent creature made this. If I sit here and wait, they'll come. But if we were gone, nobody would ever show up. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at for you there. The other thing is to understand a deer's home range. It's, it's actually much smaller than most people think. There are some areas where due to certain environmental constraints and considerations that deer break this rule. But in general, most deer have a home range. It's roughly a square mile. Again, they will break this at certain times of the year. A buck in the rut will, if he if he thinks he's got a chance to breed, will go as far as he needs to go. As long as he's the biggest, baddest kid on the block, he'll chase that doe for two miles or more easily. Uh, he'll change everything about himself to breed and procreate. And a doe that's not happy with a buck that's in her area may move to breed with it with a, a better buck to uh, to do a better job of propagating the species. But in normal conditions those deer are going to move in about a one-mile area. And if you see deer in a spot consistently, those deer are never that far away. Now, I want you to think about this. A mile in our human mind is a relatively small distance. You're driving down the highway, you see mile marker 117, then you see mile marker 118, and that doesn't seem that far. You could literally stand at one mile marker and see the other. Add to that terrain, trees and bushes and make it a square and it's a much broader area than you would expect and then understand that that square mile doesn't exist as a square now take that square and kind of contort it into an oval or to a twisted gnar and then you know bend it around the 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 areas and the resources and that square mile isn't really a square mile anymore it could actually transverse three miles linearly and be quite contorted, but they are creatures of habit. And if we start to understand where they're at and where they're existing, we, we can narrow down where they're at. We can also start to do things like finding natural funnels is one of the most advantageous things a hunter can do. Often there'll be a really broad swath of, of, of woodland, and then there'll be broad, wide open field or roads or something that has... Uh, you know, people or, or predator or anything or impassable terrain, 
and those woods will narrow down and only be 30 or 40 yards wide. If you have runs through that area, that's an ideal ambush point because not only are you likely to see the animal, but when he comes through, he's likely to be in range. Now, one thing you have to be aware about, deer are aware of this. It's not like they're completely idiots, right? When they're in that situation, when they're pushed into a funnel, they are on a heightened state of alert. So, yes, it's a good ambush point. Yes, if I have the opportunity to hunt a funnel, I'm going to do it. But I also know that deer is going to be keyed up a little bit when he's coming by, where if he's out in the middle of a very large area, he might be in a more relaxed state. So if I can find him there, that might actually be preferable. All these things are variables that have to be considered. Another thing that we have to realize about deer is the effects that pressure creates on them. You can go out, let's say the first day of deer season this year in your state, and I have no idea when it would be, and I have no idea if it's anywhere as a state, but just to make it simple, is October 1st. Now, it's September 25th, and you're out uh, doing some preseason scouting just like you should be, and you've locked in on a couple bucks and some does that are in an area, and you know where they're bedding, where they're feeding, what their routes are, what time of day they're moving, you've got it down, and maybe you've been watching them for a week or two, and they're, they're very regular. Well, September 26, 27, 28, 29, you know, 30 come up, and other hunters are out there doing the same thing you are, kind of poking around. Not real heavy, though, just basic preseason scouting. A lot of hunters don't even do it, uh, it's much to their own detriment. But that, that act, increased activity of human beings starts to have an effect, and they start to alter those patterns a little bit. And they start to move a little earlier and a little later to get more of the cover of darkness. Things start to change. Now October 1 happens. They're pretty much still on their thing. But if you don't score that day, and all the other hunters, now they're out there, man. They're rattling because they're dumb and they're rattling before it's effective. They've got deer sense and cover sense. And some of the guys, you know, uh, come from the gym without taking a shower because they're idiots and there's more human scent out there. Some of them are doing drives effectively. Some are doing drives ineffectively. But there's more people in the area. Now the entire rules and dynamics change. Those deer are still going to revolve around bedding and feeding zones. They're still going to follow basic, but they're going to alter them, their times. And the more pressure, the more they'll alter. And the more pressure, the more they're likely to say, you know what, screw my one square mile area. There's a place over here that no one ever goes to hunt me. I'm going to go there until these yahoos get the hell out of here. And you'll often get deer doing what I call hiding in plain sight. I remember one time we were hunting this area, me and a couple other guys. And uh, there was this, it was like all open fields. And there was this little tangle that used to be an apple orchard. And there were some old apple trees in there. And we knew the deer kind of hung around out there. But this whole thing was about as big as my backyard or less. And it was tangled. I mean, it was, and none of the trees were that tall. It just was like this brush pile, basically, is what it looked like. With crap growing in it and briars and brambles. And we went in there, a couple of us set up on stands, and a couple of us went in there to try to push deer out. And we put guys right through there, and they came out scratched up, and we never saw a deer come out of there. And I just went, there's there's deer here. I know there are. And my buddies didn't want to stick with it, and I went, fine, you guys leave. I'm going to set up a stand here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a deer this evening when that deer comes out of there. When it just started to get close to sundown, but it was still light enough to shoot, I saw seven deer come out. Unfortunately, they didn't come where I could get a shot at them, and I didn't take a deer that. But seven deer came out of that little clump. And even though two guys went through there twice trying to push them out, never saw them, they were there. And what you have to understand about the white-tailed deer is they are not just elusive, they're not just cunning 
They are also, it's almost like they're Teflon coated. They will go through briars and thick stuff that you're convinced a, a cat couldn't fit through. And they'll slide through there as though it's like butter off a skillet. It doesn't even seem to affect them. And there's a lot of little clumps and places like that that create opportunities. So if you can find something like that, um, once the season we're into a couple weeks or more into the season, especially once the gun hunters get out there, even if they're not after the deer, uh, a lot of states where the rifle season is well into like December and archery season might be in October, by mid-October those small game hunters are out there chasing squirrels and rabbits and pheasants and things like that. The deer don't know they're not after them. They know they're out there hearing gunshots and there's people running around wearing orange and yelling at each other and making noise and there's dogs out there and Man, they start moving into that thick stuff. If you can identify those places, sometimes it's a little piece of private land near state game land or near a place that's hunted heavily. Uh, it's just maybe land that's not even public, but people are allowed to hunt there. Nobody really cares. Um, if you can get permission from that landowner a lot of times to hunt those areas, uh, they're prime hunting spots. So it's just something to understand the effects of pressure. And it changes everything about that deer. All of the rules about I wake up and I go eat and I come back and I go to bed and I watch my back and I bed this way and I do it this way because the and they don't think that way. They just instinctively behave that way. They'll instinctively move in ways that give them the advantage from the wind. And they'll bed in places where if you try to approach them when they're bedded down, it's easy for them to detect you and very hard for you to detect them as they get up out of that bed and they slink off. I've still hunted into places where it was as quiet as I possibly could be. I saw nothing. And eventually I find a bedding area. And I touch the bedding area and it's warm to the touch. That deer was just there. And I never knew it, never heard him, never saw him. But all of those rules, they will adapt and change to deal with the consequences of pressure. And what that means is your best chance of patterning a deer and being able to intercept him on his traveling routes are going to be early in the season in areas where the hunting pressure is light and prior to the rut. Once the rut starts, it's a great time to hunt, but I've got to change my tactics. If I want to hunt that deer based on what he normally does, just living his life, I've got to be in a place where they're not either pressured by the urge to breed or they're not pressured by uh, predation, in this case, fellow hunters. The next thing I want to talk about is how do you find a place to hunt? I mean, it depends on where you live. In places like Pennsylvania, there's so much public land. So there's state game lands, there's DNR lands, there's state forests, there's all kinds of land that's privately owned, but nobody gives a damn if you hunt on it or not. And there's uh, old coal lands that no one even bothers with. And there's, you know, you can a lot of times you can get permission to hunt by walking up and knocking on the door. And then you come down to a place like Texas. And you say, this is supposed to be one of the greatest hunting places in the world, and the public land is, is heavily hunted, and it's not really that great a place to hunt, and uh, the, the, the archer doesn't have quite the, uh, the longer, you know, there's, the rifle season in Texas is long, and there's a lot of overlap, there's not a lot of time where it's just the archer, and uh, if you want to hunt anywhere than the, the limited public land that's really available and suitable for hunting, you got to pay money. So it, it's extremely variable based on where you live, but I want to talk about the different uh, options that are out there. The best option is to find private land where you can hunt for free for permission. Uh, a lot of places where there's a lot of farms and things like that, the farmers aren't really happy about the deer eating half their corn. They're quick to give permission. 
a lot of the suburban areas, and we, we call it like like a mix between rural and suburban, the places where people own two, five, ten acres, but it's more of, a, of an urbanite where they're not out there hunting themselves and all. They're often very keen to give permission to the bow hunter versus the rifle hunter. They know that they're not going to be sitting, and even though the rifle hunter is responsible, in their mind, I'm going to be sitting down eating, eating dinner while this guy's out there hunting. The next thing I know, a 30 caliber round is going to come flying through my, my, my window. They know if the guy's out there with a bow 100 yards away in the woods, he couldn't get an arrow to their house through those trees if he wanted to. So they know that there's a lot less perceived danger. So they're more open to that. Um, they also, it also seems to me that archers often are able to get into places that legitimately are dangerous for people to hunt with a rifle. There's also a lot of times where maybe you can find opportunities to take part in what are called conservation hunts. And sometimes these actually get you additional tags. So in some states, for instance, maybe you shoot one deer. Some states you might be able to shoot 30 deer. Some states it's five deer. But generally deer, you have a certain limit to how many you can take. And generally it's X buck and X doe, you know, so maybe it's one buck and three doe in some states. Maybe in other states it's one buck and one doe. Some states maybe it's two deer, one can be a buck. It's, it always is variable. A lot of states, like in one county, you have a different limit than another. But you have a certain number of tags that you can get with your license. Uh, by the way, most states you're going to need a bow hunting license in addition to your normal hunting license or a bow tag or a bow stamp or something like that and always be aware of your seasons but in some places you can get especially as a bow hunter uh, conservation tags when I lived in Pennsylvania there was a seminary not far from where I lived overrun with deer these guys you know that are in there learning to be a priest and whatever did not want somebody running around cracking off a 3006 but they also had a deer population program so you could get your name on a list and if you drew in you could go in there and shoot two deer Uh, with a bow, and no gun hunters in a lot at all. And if they didn't get enough people volunteering, you might be able to shoot three or four deer. None of them counted against their license because for population control, the seminary itself was issued conservation permits that they passed on to the hunters. There's a place that I usually don't bow hunt. I go rifle hunt just for does, and you can shoot, I think it's three does most years, Uh, you get to hunt for three days. It's 500 bucks. It's very reasonable to go hunt this place. Great ranch to hunt. And those are generally prior to even the season starting. Now, this isn't bow hunting again, but it could be. You get these conservation permits. And there's more options like that for bow hunters than deer hunters. I just learned in Hot Springs Village they have a program. They're overpopulated with deer. And uh, the guy that I, I hired to help me build the deck up there, he said he shot 15 deer one year. Uh, this guy hasn't bought hamburger in two decades. And uh, gave away some of the meat to friends and for hunters for the, the hungry and stuff like that. But basically fully stocked his meat lauder for a year just with conservation permits. Didn't go against his license at all because it's population control. There's lots of options like that for bow hunters. Check what's in your area. Uh, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, uh, that, they're overpopulated with deer. They're on the park. They don't want rifle hunters in there. Uh, there's parks around the Philadelphia area, and just because I'm from PA, I'm aware of this, where they have special permit hunts. Some allow buckshot and shotguns, uh, but not rifles, but a lot of them are just for archery. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, kind of, you know, the, again, the suburban subdivision, but, you know, the kind of wooded area and all where people are seconds of deer are eating their azaleas and are, that run special programs of population control. Always check those as well. 
Um, the easy thing is state game lands and other public lands. And as a hunter in Pennsylvania, especially with rifle season, it was really we tried more effort to get permission on private land. But for the archery season, there were so few hunters compared to the rifle season that we did most of our hunting state forest, state game lands, uh, DNR land, Department of Natural Resources land, things like that. And uh, it was always something that was reasonably acceptable, not a lot of great big bucks being taken, uh, but it's, it's a good option if it's available in your area. Some states, that land is uh, just not that highly populated with deer because it's heavily hunted because it's the only option people have. I haven't seen a lot of success, some success but not a lot of success, um, hunting public lands in Texas for deer. It's such a lease-centric state. Uh, if you want to hunt deer here, you got to have money in some ways if you want to hunt bucks. I mean, it's a big business in this state. And the further north and east you move, the less that tends to be. But the lease concept is expanding. And it's not all bad. If you can find affordable land that maybe you and three or four buddies can go in on, you get access to a large parcel, good population of deer, and the landowner allows you to do some selective management of your own, like putting uh, uh, cover crops in and uh, feedlots in or maybe feeders or, or whatever, or, you know, putting in some watering stations or something like that. There can be some real advantages to being a lease hunter. Of course, though, there's a cost. So these are all things that we have to consider when we're trying to figure out where uh, to hunt. One of the biggest options, though, that's out there kind of fits right in with modern survival philosophy. If I can find 10 acres or 5 acres or 15 acres somewhere with a good deer population that I can buy to make my little bug-out location with a travel trailer or something like that, and all the, all the good stuff we've talked about with that, all of a sudden it becomes my own private deer lease. It's not really a lease, but it works like a lease. It's private. I own it. I hunt there. I control it. Uh, so it's one of the options that, um, again, it's something you have to make an investment to do, but it's certainly worth considering as an option. What I want to finish up with today is talking a little bit about scouting. It's one of the biggest things that separates a successful hunter from the unsuccessful hunter, and it gets you out in the wilderness. And if you're thinking about modern survivalism and living off the land and foraging, there's so much overlap. While you're out doing this, uh, maybe you're foraging for uh, food and things that you can you can take home and eat, or you're learning certain areas that could be used for shelter at certain times. So. Uh, you know, the hunter really knows the woods better than just about anybody else. So if you ever need to rely on those woods, the scouting pays dividends, not just in your ability to harvest deer. Uh, but when it comes to deer and being specific, there are certain times of the year with different types of scouting and different things that you can learn from them. After the season is really a great time to scout because... The pressure goes away. All the deer hunters go home, and a week or two after the season, the deer go back into their normal habitat and their normal patterns. And you can start to locate those bucks that made it through and those does that made it through and start to figure out where you're going to do something different next year. As we go further into the winter, the other thing that starts to happen is those does uh, become pregnant and fully pregnant and get ready to start dropping fawns, and they become less mobile. Uh, during the fawn drop until the fawns are up and moving around so it's a little bit easier to locate them. Your bucks also drop their antlers. Uh, every year a buck grows the antlers to a certain size and they fall off. It's a great time to look for shed antlers and if you find a really nice rack shed 
uh, even just half of it, you can bet that that deer is generally going to be bigger and better this year than he was last year. Now you've got all year to try to find him, figure out what he's doing, pattern him, and hopefully get an opportunity to take that deer next year. Again, this is not trophy hunting in the conventional sense and the, the detrimental way people think about it. If I'm going to go out there and take a deer and I'm going to put him in my freezer and make biltong out of them and some canned venison, some chops and steaks, it is better for everybody if I take a mature buck than an immature buck. It's better for everybody if I take even a mature doe versus an immature doe. And let the next generation come up and, and, and be primed for the breeding. It's also, I, again, I have no problem with people that are proud of a nice deer. And I think if you do, and that, but you, and you're not an, if you're an any hunter, that's just, I, I, there's nothing I can say, but if like you're, you're, you, you think it's okay to go out and shoot deer, but it's not okay for me maybe, maybe to let that six pointer walk for the hope of maybe taking a nine pointer tomorrow, and you think that there's something wrong with that, inherently wrong, I, I just don't know what to say to you. Um, the person that just shoots the deer and has no concern for it other than putting a rack on the wall, that's a different story altogether. I think there's something to be said for trying to take a higher quality, more mature animal. And after the season is a great way to locate those bucks because they start dropping those antlers. Uh, and it's a great hobby too, by the way, going out there and picking up antlers. And there's all kinds of tools and things that can be made about them. And uh, if you don't find them, what happens is people start wondering, why aren't there just antlers everywhere? Uh, they don't have to stick around very long in general. Any place where there's a high mouse population, mice eat them, uh, especially the little whitefoot deer mice uh, up in the Pennsylvania area. Those things feast on them because they're a source of calcium. Uh, and uh, you might be surprised how quickly they go from being bone hard to becoming a little bit weathered and able to be consumed uh, by, by, by mice, as insane as that sounds. Um, so by the time you're in the summer, you're not going to find as, you'll find some, but not as many sheds. So early spring, late winter is the time to look for your sheds. Spring's a weird time for, uh, for scouting. Um, the bucks are really, really reclusive at that point. Uh, spring and early summer, the, those, those racks are starting to regrow and they're in what they call velvet and they're tender and they're easily damaged and they, they, they kind of, shy away. Does have their fawns and their fawns are new and, and the deer are generally in a totally different pattern than they're going to be during the hunting season anyway. It's not that you can't learn anything from going around and looking at that time of the year uh, but there's different things that are, that, are, that are being used for food then. Basically in the spring everything's food. Because anything that's a new shoot, the deer will eat. Uh, there's berries and things like that that won't be out there. So it's not the most productive scouting time. As we move into late summer and, and, and early fall into preseason scouting, we start to get much more productive in our scouting. Hopefully we've learned some things from our late winter scouting, and we've, we've kind of stayed on the pulse of things with just kind of poking around in the spring and in the early summer. As we get into August and September, uh, that's when we can really start to hone in. Hopefully we've found those deer that we were looking for. We're starting to pattern them. We understand when the mass drop is coming, when certain harvests are coming, and we can really zero in. But the point I'm trying to make is deer hunting, especially with a bow, um, if you live in the area you're going to hunt, I'm not talking about traveling to Montana once a year or whatever, really should be a year-round event. You, you should always be out there looking for sign, looking for pattern, looking for everything that goes along with that. And it's a, again, it's a great opportunity to be out there harvesting blueberries or wild strawberries or, or you know, uh, hazelnuts if you live in an area where they grow wild like the Pacific Northwest. 
uh, or anything else that's out there and to learn uh, what, what's going on out there and to scout other game at the same time and just to get out there and be part of the wilderness. Uh, it's, it's really a great way to make it much more than just about sitting in a tree in the evenings for a few weeks out of the year, hoping to get a shot. It's a much more holistic way to look at things, and I just don't feel that it's the same if you don't do that. And I think not only do your odds of success go down, but your total enjoyment of the experience goes down as well. And then what I want to kind of sum up with you today, my last thing I want to talk about as I close down today's show, is the un the, the rewards you'll never really understand until you do it. I talked a little bit about this yesterday, but I want to go deeper into this because I really do want more people out there passionate about the sport and understanding what it is to be a bow hunter. When you get up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. and it's dark as hell out and You're tired and you don't want to do it. and You, you drag yourself out into those woods. And A uh, little tip I didn't give you yesterday with my tips, but one of the things that can really help you is using a product called Night Tacks. And these are little tacks you can put into a tree that when you shine a flashlight, they glow in the dark like little eyes. So you follow your night tax to where your stand is or where your trees you're going to go up in your stand with. And you climb up in there, and it, it's completely quiet other than night sounds. Uh, you know, you've got the, the sounds of the night going on. And you sit still and you've kind of disturbed things a little bit and those sounds come back. And then all of a sudden they just kind of go away. It gets really, really still. And it gets really, really quiet. Because it's a, it's a conversion process. We're going from night to morning. And there's a resting period. And then the first sounds of morning start and they get louder and louder. And there's birds singing and chirping and things moving around. And you hear the leaves being rustled and you can't really see anything yet. Your vision's adjusting to the change and the light slowly starts to come through. And then the forest literally comes alive in front of you. It's not the same when you're out there with a rifle and there's a lot of other guys in the woods. When you're out there and you're one of the few and you're there with the bow and it's early in the year... And a lot more of the just general activity, not just the deer activity, but the animal activity and the bird activity is going still full tilt. It's different. And instead of sitting there in orange and you're on the ground, you're up in a tree and you're part of nature and you literally look like part of the tree. And things happen like you're sitting there and little black-capped chickadees come through the forest and they're landing on the trees and they're hanging upside down from by their ass looking at you trying to figure out what you are. And one flits along and just lands right on, the, on your arrow that's knocked in your bow. And, and, and basically just rubs his beak on the arrow and then flies away and never even thought something was wrong. Just you were part of that and he didn't know. And you start to hear things that, that most people don't hear. We, we'd get it in Pennsylvania, for instance, we had rough grouse. And uh, the grouse would generally breed in the, in the spring, obviously. And the males would get territorial and they would drum and it would make a sound like... And you'd hear it. I mean, it's a sound. Once you hear it, you know it. Well, they would eat the, the fox grapes in the fall and get drunk and think it was spring and they would be there drumming like it was spring and you hear sounds like that or you see a grouse or if you're near uh, the farmlands, a pheasant or a turkey or something come through the woods and walk right past you. You see people jaw jacking, walking down a trail somewhere, uh, fellow hunters maybe that are out for small game and never see you. These things set bow hunting apart. It's such a low-impact sport 
on the environment. It's almost like you're not there. In fact, your observation is more of what makes you there than your impact if you're doing it right. The whole point is to be unseen. And all of these things add up to make it a sport that truly must be experienced to be understood. Now, am I saying you couldn't go get it? You know, if you don't want to hunt, you don't want to kill animals, or you just don't want to do that part of it, could you go get a stand, climb up in a tree at the right time of the year and sit there and experience many of these things? You could, but you probably won't. Without the motivation of the sport, it's probably not going to happen. Maybe a photographer could do this. But to do it consistently... That takes a dedication that a lot of times is what comes with hunting. And I guess maybe photographers would experience a lot of this. But what nobody but the archer will experience is when you've been doing this for two weeks or three weeks and you're ready to give up. And you've seen some deer maybe, or maybe you've seen nothing. Maybe you've heard some deer activity, but you haven't really gotten any of them closer. Maybe you've even had some frustrating experiences where the deer's been in range but walking directly towards you and the obstructions and you just couldn't get a shot off or maybe you got burned once or twice and you're just thinking maybe it's not worth it today but you drag your ass out of bed and you get out there and as the forest is slowly coming to life you hear the sound that can only be a deer walking they they have a sound a distinctive sound they make when they're walking that no other creature out there makes and it's coming from the right way It doesn't matter if it's a buck of a lifetime or just that dough that you're going to fill the freezer with. And they come right into the way that they're supposed to do. And everything happens right. And just as the head's about to go behind a tree where you know they can't see you, and that, that the, 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 the foreleg that's closest to you goes forward and opens up that perfect kill shot, and you come to feel full draw, and the world around you vanishes. And it's all about this moment and this second, and doing the right thing in every bit of it, from that late season scouting where you found a shed, up till right now, and all those hours of practice, and it all comes to fruition. And one mistake on your part can blow the whole thing. And you don't make the mistake. You do it right. You let that arrow fly. And you watch it, and it's almost like it's in slow motion, even it's moving amazingly fast. And you watch it track straight to its target. And it hits where it's supposed to, and it blasts right through that deer. And that deer runs off and doesn't even really know what happened. And you watch it fall over, or if it's too far for you to see it, you hear it fall over. You hear that crash. And then you hear that sound that can only mean one thing. That's the death kick, that, that leg. Maybe it's... It all depends on the situation. And once that happens, that moment comes to an end. Even before you get down, but it's the euphoria that's there for a while. And for those of you that don't understand how a man can love an animal and kill an animal, maybe you've never dealt with hunting or livestock or anything like that, uh, it may be hard to understand. But it's not about the kill. It's about the moment And it's about that moment being in some way absolutely, totally perfect for just that moment. And for that moment, you start to realize you're part of something bigger. And there's a self-reliance component there. There's a self-sufficiency component there. There's an understanding now that it's not just that I'm feeding my family, that I earned it. 
I earned it. It's my right as a predator, as a fellow predator on this planet, to take this animal in a way that's fitting with who I am and what I am and who it is and what it is. And you can't find it anywhere else. There is no substitute for it. And no disrespect for firearms hunters, again, I am one too. But it does not compare. It cannot compare. And it will not compare. And until you put all the work in and come to that one moment in time where it's all up to you and it's your choice whether you take the shot or not. And I can't say there's never been a time where at certain times I've said, not today. And I've let a deer walk that was a reasonable harvest for one reason or the other. Maybe not because it wasn't good enough, but because I just decided on this day, no, I've had enough. I don't need this. And on other days, I am going to feed my family. And it's that pre, that pinpoint in time that you make that choice and you let that arrow fly. And it all depends on you doing everything right in that second. And when you do it, there's nothing like it in the world. That's what bow hunting is to me. And that is something that I hope I've shared with you. Not just the mechanics, not just the how, but the why and the bigger why. And I hope those of you that aren't really hunters and maybe you won't get any time to hunt soon can still glean from this experience and realize how much of what I pour into this show is because I've had those experiences. When you do that, you know what it is to truly be connected with the planet. You know what it is to be truly connected with, I'm either going to eat tonight or I'm not. And all of the other things that we talk about when it comes to modern survivalism just come into crystal clear focus and make a hell of a lot more sense. So if you've never considered it, maybe now's the time. Find a good bow shop. Find a good mentor. Get shooting. Develop those muscles. Get out there in the woods. Learn what's around you. And if you don't live where deer are, look for something else that can fill that role for you. Uh, as, as incredible as it is to take a deer with a bow, I've never done it, but I bet taking an elk with a bow or a black bear with a bow is even better. I've taken uh, um, some exotic game with the bow. I've taken wild boar with the bow. I can tell you that it's always the same. The heart beats always in your ears. It's always worth doing. And some of you guys, you know, that maybe you, you don't have access to hunt something like deer uh, with a reasonable success rate. Finding that place where you can go pay to hunt wild hogs is a much more affordable route and maybe a great first step. Small game, squirrels, rabbits, things like that. Get rid of the get rid of the uh, arrowhead. You don't need anything special. They make special heads to do that. But we used to just take an arrow and take a 38 special shell casing, epoxy it to the end of an arrow to make a blunt tip. And we used to hunt rabbits and squirrels with that. And when you hit them with that, man, they're done. It just takes them straight away out. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do. So consider giving it a try. And again, I think now is the time, not uh, not not uh, three weeks before the season starts to go out there and shop for a bow and try to get all this stuff down. It took two days, and I can still go on for another two days if I wanted to. There's so much involved, and it all starts with that first step. So on that note, this has been Jack Spirico uh, with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life and not get tough.
Nobody up there cares. They're living for today.